Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. This is about an uh, evil genius in love. Evil genius mind. It woke me up from my sleep and I don't like it. No, you're an evil genius is what you are. If this works, you're, you're some kind of a, a evil genius. Honest to God. Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. I am your little podcast buddy, Dave Slusher. Welcome to this show. I appreciate your time. First to business, the show is not kid safe, not work safe, not virus free. It has been vaccinated, but not boosted. The show is Creative Commons licensed, non-commercial attribution 4.0, unported. Theme music is by the late great band, The Gentle Readers. Bandwidth is by Cashfly under the kind auspices of Backbeat Media. I have a job. I work for people. I ain't talking for them right now at this time. Let us get to a song. I looked on my list, and this is a band name. I remembered the band name, and I didn't remember anything about the band. And I said, huh, let's check this out. Uh, I know that this was an old performance anxiety pick that has been on my list for a while, and I listened to it, and it was phenomenal. Like, holy shit, why have I not been listening to this all the time? <laughs> okay, so the name of the band is Dolly Varden. They are not, it is not a play on uh, the singer, as much as you might think about it. Um, it's a kind of trout, and uh, if you <laughs> just Google that name unqualified, you'll get all trout info. But uh, it's a band from Chicago. And they're kind of in that alt country thing that I love so much. How is it that I am not already listening to them all the time? And they got they've been around band for twenty years and they got a shitload of albums. Holy cow, Dolly Varden. So uh don't just to take my word for it, uh listen to this. This is the song called California Zephyr. Throw out the couch Clean up the windows Shave down the door To last through the winter And pull up the floorboards Early that morning And later that evening Hammer them down 
oh my dudes <laughs> and dudettes <laughs> i literally went into amazon music and typed in dolly varden and i clicked at random one of the songs that came up that was the very first song i played and it was mind-blowingly good <laughs> so uh i have got a lot more exploration of dolly varden uh, that was a 20 year old song that was from a 1998 or 25 year old song that was from a 1998 album and they've got uh i think the newest one i saw in there was 2013 but i know that uh, mark shea interviewed this guy like within the last year or two maybe there will be more this very much in that um it's kind of a similar time frame to the general readers and they have a similar sound to the general readers down to the like the the uh, keyboards in the background so i like everything about that so uh let me know if you like that dave at evil genius chronicles org or let dolly varden know that you like it i don't know how you <laughs> it'll be in the show notes i don't know nothing about them they have a website uh but uh if, if you hear it I, I i have noticed in recent days um that uh laura carbone and uh, Humanist have both liked the tweets where I mentioned playing their musics. So I guess neither one of them people are going to come after me with legal action. I think maybe they're just appreciative their music is getting played. Dolly Varden from the album The Thrill of Gravity. That was a song called California Zephyr. Whew, good stuff. All right. And now let us get to what a number of people think is the absolute height of uh, podcasting. Now or in the future. And that is the reading... Of the patrons. The following people went to bit.ly, bit.ly slash EGC Patreon, and they pledged their support to shamble the shambling mess towards uh, the finish line, uh, of which there is no finish line. Thank you to the following people Derek Coward, Adam Rittenauer, Ken Kennedy, Paul Fisher, Arhuli, Robert Harvey, Paul Smith, Andrew Heron, Grant Bachoko, Nutty Nuke Chas, Tony Ewing, Craig Stepp, Steve Holden, Shannon Nelson, Charlotte Kennedy, Leah, the Ending Magic, Angela Lee, Chuck Tomasi, Stuart Maxwell, John Richardson, Michael Butler, Bruce Lerner, Eric Peterson, Skeeter Murphy, Chiaki Hinahara, Robert Gibson, Lynn Edgerly, Melissa A. Bartell, Andrew Howe, Michael Street, Neil Forker, Daiko, Kevin Freedy, Brian Springer, Jared M., Tim Shaw, Rob Usden, Wayne Pittenger, and last but not least, Brian Jones. Thank you, one and all, for uh, supporting the show. Again, bit.ly, bit.ly slash EGC Patreon. Thank you, one and all. And with that, let us kill the music. Ah, I love it when it works. I kind of stopped using uh, uh, reading of the patrons' outtakes in if i put outtakes at the end of the show i stopped doing reading of patron ones because it's 90 percent of the time if i screw something up it will be there because there's a lot of moving parts uh with that whole thing and after a while i was like how many times <laughs> how many times can i play me screwing up and forgetting to talk or making the music too loud or whatever so anyway um in the previous show, I talked a little, uh, a little bit of uh, in memoriam for John Kincaid. I actually had a uh, topic to mention that uh, I sort of got carried away talking about John and talking about stuff, and I, I actually blipped over a line at him, and that was uh, so. John and I know each other from WRK, and I worked there as a student from. It was one of those things where I should have started as a freshman because I would have enjoyed it. I didn't even know about it until years in, or I knew that it was there, but I didn't consider being part of it and the whole uh, let me i haven't told the story in a long time i ha probably have on the podcast it was i believe a fourth of july weekend and as was my time then i was i don't know 19 one of the things i liked to do if we had a long weekend is i liked to let's say we had friday off and monday off what i would do in that circumstance is i would start getting drunk on thursday night and i would stay drunk until monday night <laughs> I enjoyed a nice this is this sounds like the beginning of a terrible uh story. I enjoyed a good multi-day drunk. I enjoyed getting drunk and I didn't want to get sloppy drunk. I didn't I hopefully would not black out for any of that. I liked to get ideally get a nice even drunk and stay that even drunk the whole time <laughs> and then I would get up and start at it again. Hopefully I would wake up buzzing and I would keep buzzing. 
And so I would, I would say I would get up in the morning and start drinking. But let's be honest, at this time period, in in these circumstances, uh, I was not getting up in the morning. And so in the middle of one of these things, I was at my frat house with some of my buddies. So it's the summer. So it's already, I'm there, I think, because I probably am at my co-op job, I would imagine. Uh, or I'm in summer school. I can't remember, but you know, I was a year round because of co-op. I was, I didn't go home for the summers. I was there. I was a lifer at Georgia tech. And what I was doing is, uh, I was on, uh, I, I was nice and lit up and I had a beer bottle. And for some reason I started doing a Phil Donahue thing at this time, Phil Donahue would have still been on the air. And I was interviewing, um, my my uh, fraternity brothers and then when i ran out of fraternity brothers i would start interviewing passers-by that were walking down the sidewalk and so i was like hello what's your question you know, start yes what's your question <laughs> and i would just start doing a phil dunnyhue thing and it was uh by all accounts not this is not me in my you know multi-day drunk but other people said that it was just hilarious and they were just falling over one of the guys a guy's walking down the street and i start doing this to him and he's on his way to WREK. We are, uh, our frat house was the closest, you could not live closer to the studios than our frat house. We were across the parking lot from the Georgia Tech Coliseum, which is where the WREK studios were at the time. He was on his way from the dorms to the thing. And he's like, you're really funny. You should come and be a DJ at WREK. And I'm like, really? He's like, uh, is that your question? <laughs> you know, whatever I was doing. That sounds more like Larry King than Phil Donahue. I, it's been so, I don't even remember what Phil Donahue sounds like anymore. But the, uh, uh, and so I think I went in Monday and said, how do you start up uh, on, the, you know, whatever the next operating day was. And I went in and uh, did the training. And uh, I, unlike everyone that goes in there, I had a fourth class operating license because I was a DJ in uh, Norton. And I still had uh, my, I still had the little card with me i had it available with me my my uh radio operator's license so i didn't even have to apply for it it was a rubber stamp thing even then but uh i didn't even have to apply for it so i knew i mean i knew the basics i knew how to take meter readings i knew all that kind of shit um the things that i was not good at was the wrek style format and i had to be inculcated into that but uh so that's how i got into wrek and so I did that for years. I did. I came back and did Reality Break as an alumnus, um, partly because I didn't have the balls to do it when I was a student, because I wanted to do it when I was still a student there. And I thought, the, the, the thing that kept me from doing it, which uh, I told authors about this and they thought it was hilarious, is can I find enough science fiction authors who want to talk about their books? <laughs> I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Turns out uh, authors are dying to have places to talk about their books particularly in the Middlest authors that I kind of focused on. So I did stuff for them as an alumnus, you know, and then later on, uh, you know, when I moved uh, from Atlanta to Louisiana, I, you know, I kept doing stuff. I kept mailing tapes back there. So I was on the air the whole time, even when I was gone, I would mail them a cassette of the next week's show. That's how I got started with uh, KRVS because I was, I begged them to let me use their production studio to do my radio show for Atlanta. That's how we got syndicated is when the dude said, you're already mailing a, you're already mailing a tape to a station. Let's mail a tape to a satellite station and put it on the satellite. I was like, okay. The station manager at KRVS uh, is the one who <laughs> kicked that off. Um, so, uh, you know, so that was my, like, REK. And then um, in 2000, uh, it was, the sh- station was kind of in crisis. It was kind of falling apart. They, the, One of the bad things about it is because it didn't have, like, a, well, many stations have a permanent like staff member who's part of that and then the students do stuff which the upside of that is stability and the downside is that it's a little less student empowerment and rec didn't have that it was full student which means you are subject and you can have wild swings you can have the most capable group in there and then two late years later they've all graduated and it's you have an incapable group and we were kind of at that place and it was falling apart to the point where um I mean, it was, if you've ever read Atlas Shrugged, it was kind of like an Atlas Shrugged thing where a thing would break and nobody knows how to fix it. And so they start working around it and then another thing breaks. And it was kind of at that point where like things were just unfixed and people would get frustrated and they would just power the station off. So the the station might be off from like, you know, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. because there was just no one to work it and no one cared. And so that was the point. And around that time I got laid off 
And because I wanted to be, um, because I wanted Oracle database on my resume is <laughs> one of the drivers. As I went in and I started working with, um, at the same time, there was another different alumnus who was a uh, put audio vault, which is at the time, I don't know if it still is, but at the time was the premier, it was the thing that radio stations used. And he said, I do this. I'll just give st- the station a license. I will gift them a license and I'll set it up. So he set up this audio vault system. So we were, you know, digitizing uh, music and put, putting it, building up a library of the whole thing. And I said, huh, I could build a state. I think I could build a system that would actually play this music in audio vault. I, I you know, read the docs on how you, uh, how you can like import a playlist into audio vault. So I wrote a Java program that would, that would, so I, first I put our music library into Oracle. It was already kind of in there, and I put it into a better form. And then I wrote a Java program program that would pull the programming data, like the format and the song and the time and all this stuff, pull it down from Oracle, assemble it into a rec formatted playlist, which is you play certain songs at certain times of the day. And then, so I built that, all that stuff, and built and then exported it in a form that AudioVault could import into like its little import directory. So it'd write that file and then boop, it would, uh, the songs would be there. So once we did that, we had the beginnings of an unautomated, unattended station. And once you have a thing, you can just turn the robot on and we needed to do, we needed like a $500 piece of equipment, which would notify, I think it would page at the time, because I think this was slightly before ubiquitous cell phones. Um, it would, if it, if it heard silence, I think for two, more than two minutes, it would page the chief engineer, something like that. And that was the thing we needed to legally be able to run with no, uh, no, uh, person in there. And then we did that. And then the station never shut off again. As far as I know, the station has only been off for like antenna repairs in the last 20 some years, right? We, we did that. Uh, and then when, after I left, uh, after we moved to Chicago, um, the the I was for a while doing WREK database curation, um, so I would go through I would do, like doing the care and feeding of the database, and at some point I said, you know, this is a black hole. I could do this forever. I could just spend one hour every evening for the rest of my life, and I would never come to the end of this. I think the students should do this, and I just stopped doing it cold turkey. And uh, within two months, I was podcasting. <laughs> that energy that was doing all that rec stuff became this podcast. And more or less at that point, I basically cut the ties and I've never done any appreciable WREK stuff ever since. You know, I still listen. I listen to the Subgenius shows. I listen to, as I mentioned, personality crisis at, at times. Um, sometimes I listen to the personnel. Uh, sometimes I listen to the DeSoto Hour. Um, Fred Rendy third is the host of it, but Fred Rendy Jr., who was probably in his 80s at the time. Fred Rendy third is probably in his 70s at this point, but uh, he was my friend. He he was actually the DeSoto Hour. It was right after Reality Break, so I would hang out with him and talk to him. Hear uh, great old-time radio stories and sometimes uh, verging on horribly racist things, but <sighs> it's kind of... <sighs> The, the the it was the mixed bag of uh southern men of that uh era is it was very hard to unwind the racism from a lot of them but he was you know he had these great like he was a during the big band era he was a, a dj he was that old and uh he was a he was a fun guy but so i basically just said at some point i was involved and then i was not involved like i flipped the switch I was highly involved and I was uninvolved. And I'm more or less still uninvolved. My wife wanted a WRK hoodie for Christmas and I got her that. I also bought myself a new black WRK logo shirt, which I have one that's probably 30 years old and it's getting, uh, you know how you have that old black t-shirt that is now kind of a mid to light gray. Uh, I got a new black, black one. And I also got uh, the um, an REK logo vinyl uh pad like the thing that goes on the vinyl uh you know on your record player i got myself one of those fine but uh you know i can't imagine that i will ever do anything serious with the station again uh to be honest there was a period where i could have had an opportunity to tour the station uh it was at dragon con i was in atlanta for dragon con and they were doing uh the sub geniuses were there ivan stang was there and they did a 
uh, Devival, and I was hanging out with Susie and uh, Ivan Stang, and the chief engineer at the time of the station was there, and it was like 3 a.m. He's like, you know, I'd take you over to the station and give you a tour right now. I was like, ah, that's okay. I didn't even care. <laughs> I didn't even want... I really bummed that guy out, actually, because he was like all excited to show me the station. It's like, I didn't even... I wasn't even interested in schlepping across the very short drive from downtown to Georgia Tech to look at the station in the middle of the night. I didn't, I just didn't give a shit. And I still kind of don't give a shit. They're on, I don't know, they're on like the second or third physical station that I've never seen. And I still, I, I can't even imagine. They had a WREK alumni weekend and I was not even that interested in going to that. Um, if they have another one, I might, because it turns out my family wanted to go and nobody told me. So I, I would have gone if, uh, uh, I had known anybody else cared, but nobody informed me of that. But there you go. And it actually bums people out. It bums my friend Tim out that I was so uninvolved in that. And I think it bums Chris Campbell out that I'm kind of uninvolved. But, you know, it just is. Similarly. Now, it was a super formative thing to me. And I'm super glad I did it. And I'm super proud of things that I did there. I'm super proud of having... God help me. I hope my Java code is not running. I wrote that code 20 years ago. I hope that uh, they have way radically improved that. Like, given an, uh, another crack, I, I know how I wrote it, and the algorithm I used was super inefficient. I could have do so much better today. I hope they have a much more efficient one. The uh, Similarly, uh, you know, I was a brother. I mentioned a, a Zeta Beta Tau, ZBT. Uh, that was my fraternity. I was super involved with it. I'm super proud of my fraternity. I am in no way ashamed of frat boy. I don't care how much frat boy is a pejorative for a certain kind of douchebag. I don't give a shit. I am proud of the fact that I am a brother of Zeta Beta Tau. I think we did good stuff there. I think I'm actually proud of our, you know, I was proud of the fact that we were the only non-historically black um, fraternity that had black brothers. We didn't have one. We had a couple right? We, we made an effort and, uh, we cared and we liked these guys and we offered them bids and they pledged, uh, some of them kind of against family, uh, objections because they were legacies at historically black fraternities. And so I felt like we were doing good work. I felt like we did good charitable stuff. I think we were, uh, less creepy. <laughs> I'm not saying we're non-creepy. <laughs> I'm not saying there was zero creepy. But uh, you know, we were not uh, we were not as gross as some of them. I'm not saying we were non-gross, um, and, and I'm proud of that. At the same time, uh, I give uh, that chapter money sometimes, and ZBT emails me like national emails me, and my chapter emails me. I probably get an email probably every three days from one of those two. I asked my family. Um, I learned the, the lessons of the alumni weekend and um, my um, fraternity house, the house that I lived in for several years, uh, you know, um, when I was roach wrangler, <laughs> that was the position I held. Uh, we, we had a roach problem and it was, I coordinated getting every single person out of the house and like, cause you can't, when you have like 14 rooms the way that you have in there, uh, you can't just roach bomb one room cause the roaches just go to another room. You had to do the entire house and it was, awful. <laughs> I, uh, I won't tell you, but it was awful. I also was involved in the cleanup afterwards. And, whew, you, the places where you saw, it was like a horror movie where roaches were coming out of like the crown molding roaches are coming out of it. It's like, <laughs> I'm giving myself the willies thinking about it. That house is going to be, they're putting a bridge. Downtown Atlanta now is so weird to me because 14th street, uh, which was one of the main thoroughfares when I lived there is like it dead ends. Like you, you can't cross the interstate and 17th street has a bridge over it, which didn't when I lived there, they're putting a bridge over sixth street and where the, uh, like where that bot- foot of the bridge is going to go is where my fraternity house, uh, used to sit. So eminent domain, baby, it is gone. And, uh, I, I, I don't believe it's gone yet. I don't know where the, like it's on the, uh, campus it's on the the university to find them a new place almost certainly it is not going to be nice and central right there by the, the coliseum uh you know it, it was kind of a prime spot and it is a damn shame it was right by the baseball stadium it was right by the basketball coliseum it you know i liked it i liked where the spot was i liked living there um 
And I, almost certainly the next space can't be as good, but whatever. But there's all these things. So I offered them, they said, this is homecoming. This will probably be the last homecoming in this uh, house because it's going to be torn down when they put the bridge in. No one in my house cared. <laughs> so I'm, it's the opposite of the other thing where I wasn't into it and it turns out everybody else was. And this thing, I was kind of into it and uh, nobody else was. So we didn't do that. It's like, we can visit my niece. She's at, uh, she's at Georgia Tech now. It's like, eh. We'll go some other time when we don't have these other obligations. Like, okay, fine. So we passed up the last homecoming probably at that, in that building. The last homecoming ceremony that will ever be in the house I once lived in. Nobody gave a shit. Kesara. But in both of these things, I'm proud of that. I'm glad I was part of these organizations. They were a part of my youth. I would have the opportunity to stay involved. There are opportunities as an alumnus. Both of them welcome alumnus contributions. I have contributed to both as an alumnus, and I don't feel like I'm going to contribute to either as an alumnus ever again. And they're very, I mean, I, I was going to say they're tied together in my head. I mean, they were physically tied together because there was a time period where I lived in one and walked the 20 yards to the other one and did them. So they were kind of physically tied together. But it's just a time of my, I, I don't feel like, Certainly, when I was at ZBT, there were dudes, brothers uh, who had previously graduated, that were there every weekend. And those guys were kind of creepy. They were the, the, you know, the, the high school alumnus who comes back to all the high school dances, even though, they're, even though they're, you know, 22. Those people are super creepy. And at some point, the alumnus who never moves on, we're not talking about the people who contribute and come to you know, do special things and come when there's a special need. We're talking about the people who are just always there. That feels creepy to me. And I'm not saying that I'm avoiding that because, you know, I haven't even set foot in the place in 20-ish years. But um, that's not my motivation. I'm just saying that I flipped the switch with Rec and kind of with ZBT, which is I don't mind contributing money, but... I just can't ever see being that involved again at uh, like a high physical level where I'm actually doing stuff with them. It's just, I, I don't know why it just feels like a time has passed and I've moved on and it's just not as important to me as it used to be. And with that, let us take a sip of this fine. Mm. I just went down and refilled it. Oh, mm. brewed today. Oh, it's warm. I don't have the Isaac Newton cooling law issue. <laughs> when the room's 50 degrees, your coffee gets cold a lot faster than when your room's, you know, 71. Oh, thank you, Newhouse. All right, one more sip. Mm. So as I'm recording this, we have both, you know, it's been, we're getting close to the two-month mark since we bought this house, and we're about a couple weeks past moving in. We're about two weeks past when we sold uh, our previous house. And, you know, I told the story of how we showed it while, while we were on vacation and uh, everything worked fine. We had the one offer and the one offer backed out and we got the other offer. We went down to closing. So we closed right after the new year. Uh, and we moved closing back one day because we were going to close the Monday after the new year and we moved it back a day because uh, of courthouses being closed and the pr- the previous people's transaction uh, just to make it safe so it gave it more time to go through, we would move it back a day. So we go in on the Tuesday after New Year's and we sign the paperwork in the morning. 9 a.m., sign the paperwork. Later that day, they sign the paperwork. They ask us, um, can we get the release so that we can start moving our stuff in a little early? Because uh, our, you know, our, our moving truck's already here and we want to kind of, they want to get, the crew wants to get back to Virginia and blah, blah, blah. I was not that into it. Uh, I kind of of the was of the when the transaction clears, you get the keys. Um, softer hearted members of the team <laughs> said, "Okay, uh, we got the." But then my concern was, I don't want them. I don't want their um, movers, uh, you know, breaking a window and then I was telling us the window was already broken when they got there. So um, we got them to sign a, an addenda to the contract that says, "At the moment you take possession of the house, it's as is." So you can raise no objection about anything once you start moving stuff in. Uh, so fair enough. So it gets to be the end of the day and we don't see the um, money wired into our bank account. 
And my wife is freaking out. I was like, are you sure the numbers are right? And next morning, money's not there. And so we call the closing, our closing attorney and like, where's the money? We haven't got the money. They haven't sent us the money yet. This is Wednesday. Uh, make a long story short, the money finally showed up in our uh, account Monday morning. So a full seven calendar days after the transaction. It was supposed to be the same day. Oh, Lord. And there was so much stress associated with this. And apparently, I still to this day don't know the story. I mean, it was a fuck up, right? This is not how, how real estate transactions are supposed to go. We signed, they signed, they give us the money, we're done. Uh, it's supposed to go like that. It's supposed to be record the same day, give us the money, record it the same day, then we give you the keys. And we really were fucked by the fact that they had this early occupancy. So their urgency, if they were sitting, if their moving truck was like sitting in front of the house, unable to get in because the transaction hadn't closed, it would be a different thing than they've already moved in. They're unpacking. They're probably more unpacked than we are. And, uh, you know, so yes, it's a legal problem that they haven't paid us, but, you know, they're sitting in their house. And I much would have rather had them out in the cold in a car. It's like, so uh, apparently the problem was like transactions back. So apparently well, part of the thing that was supposed to make this a sweeter sweetheart deal to us was that it was an all cash transaction, but they didn't have the cash until they sold their house. And the people who were buying the house from them, I think were doing a cash transaction, but didn't have the cash. So there's a chain of these things. And then compounded by the fact that I think that was the first two days of this was that the previous, they hadn't actually got the money for their house. So they didn't even have the money, which is, by the way, we got lied to so many times. Oh yeah. No, it's on its way. They told, we were told the money was on its way when later we were told that they didn't even have the money at that time. So people just lied through their fucking teeth to us, (laughs) which at some point when I was, there was a point where I was had lawyers on speed dial. And it's like, I'm suing somebody <laughs> for this. And the getting lied to was a, was a, absolutely an aggravating uh, aspect of that. <clears throat> but then all uh, at some point, apparently, the lawyer in Virginia is an old man whose paralegal was out and could not, did not know how to operate the wire. And apparently, our attorney talked to him two or three times, telling him how to do the wiring instructions. And then he called back and said, I need those wiring instructions again. So it was at some point, actually the guy, the husband that bought our house was driving to Virginia because he was going to drive to Virginia to get a physical check. If this fucker couldn't make it happen. Uh, <laughs> it was such a clusterfuck and much like it put me in mind of the guy who used, or the, the, not the guy, but the company that used to publish Nathan Lowell, before he was self-published, he was kind of pseudo self-published in that there was a, uh, a publisher that handled mostly, mostly authors who were doing almost all of it themselves, except they were the interface to the uh, publishing mechanisms. So they had the Amazon accounts and the Ingram's accounts and all that stuff. And at some point, that publisher very indie publisher went incommunicado and they had, I don't know, this stable of like t- maybe 10 authors, let's say. Uh, these are lookable, upable facts I'm not looking up. And they went incommunicado, I think because the, la- the lady who was, it was basically a one person show and she was ill for a while and went incommunicado. Um, and so then authors, uh, especially indie, low, mid-list and lower authors are the most insecure creatures on this planet. And they didn't get their royalty statements for a little while, and then they started freaking out. And so then it was the absence of communication created a fiasco. And I'm pretty sure that there, the the that publisher was created to publish her husband's works. And I'm pretty sure at this point that's the only person because I think she decided other authors were no longer worth it. They were too much trouble for too little money. And this was part of it because everyone freaks out and then they wanted to pull their books and then they were getting no response to their request to pull their books and all this stuff. So it is in these situations. What creates the fiasco is the 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 communication void. If early on in our transaction, we had been told there is a problem with the money. Uh, well, for one thing, we would not have given them that early release. That was one of our whole things is we said, we, you signed, had us sign this under, uh, you at the time knew you didn't have the money. 
you did not disclose that fact. So you were not operating in good faith. You actually, it was a bad faith argument. I think that part of the reason to do that was to make sure they could get in, even though they knew they weren't paying four days. They knew this, which was going to be the basis of the lawsuit. The, um, and so, but the, if we had been told that it would have been a very different week for us as opposed to, oh yeah, the money's on the way. And then the next day the money's not there. Oh yeah, the money, you know, the check's in the mail. Next day, the money's not there. We had seven days of like, what's going to happen? Are we going to have to repossess this house from them, make them get out and move their stuff out and sell the house again? I mean, we had, we did not know how bad this could get. And we didn't want to do any of that. All we wanted was our money. And all we wanted was the transaction to settle. That's why we signed the paperwork on Tuesday. It was an awful week. It seemed like we did not get any definitive word that money existed until like 5.30 p.m. Friday. We had already made the decision that we were going to spend that weekend trying not to worry about it, trying not to think about it, because we can't do anything over the weekend anyway. And then Monday morning, if we had to, if if we had, I had the list of lawyers, our, our real estate lawyer suggested some litigators and I was going to call somebody on, get a consult Monday morning and see what our options were. Thankfully, the money came in right about that time, but oh, it was a bullet sweat the whole time. And it was just awful and it didn't have to be. And the reason it was awful is because we got lied to and or selectively, we had some lies of commission for sure. They're just deliberately attorneys and real estate agents telling us deliberate falsehoods that they knew were lies. Uh, I believe <laughs> our real estate company is, was shooting for a reprimand of theirs because they there was a situation where they knew that this guy had to have represented misrepresented the facts. And they, they were uh, calling his agency, I think, trying to get him in hot water uh, for basically being an unethical douchebag. But it um, didn't have to be. So the absence of facts, uh, you know, in the void, you fill in basically the worst case scenario. And, and in order to prevent that, just give us the real, just tell us the real thing and we won't fill in a worse thing. Ah, it's just awful. But it's done and we're in the house and everything uh, is settled now. One of the things that I'm doing now is uh, I, I, I had had a fun year playing with Home Assistant in the old house, setting things up. And everything worked. And I knew it was kind of a house of cards. Um, And it wasn't really represented to me how uh, card-like my house was until I picked up my house and moved it to another house. And once I plugged in Home Assistant over here and beep, 30% of the things worked, (laughs) I realized, ooh, yeah, Hmm. So I actually, one of the nice things about it is having, you know, this is basically uh, the the second draft or maybe even the third draft because I maybe had the second draft at the old house of my home assistant setup. So this meant that uh, I could really be intentional about stuff that I was just kind of winging it before. Uh, And so I'm really deliberately thinking about how do we put, like which lights are on switches? Which lights are smart bulbs? Which, where are we doing this? What, how do we want to do stuff? You know, some of the things were, here's how much a house of cards it was, is that my Roku TV can be uh, accessed via Home Assistant. You can use Home Assistant to turn it on and turn it off. And in fact, I have an automation that says, when um, you turn the TV on, turn off the lamp, the living, the, the Weibo switch that is the lamp uh, light, because, you know, you don't want it glaring off the screen. So in order to do that, the the Roku TV has to be recognized by the TV. And it wasn't. And I had to go back. And I'm like, I don't even remember how this thing works. Turns out, in your configuration, you set the IP address of the TV. <laughs> well, when we moved houses, we're not even on the same subnet, right? This weird uh, HomePass thing that we use, it's like 192.168.40. So there is it is it's not even the same prefix that we had before so every ip address is guaranteed to be different like even if you were trying to have it the same it couldn't be because we don't have the the dot one uh network in here 
So I had, I was like, oh, is that why it doesn't work? So the, um, the, the stability and the robustness of my home assistant setup has really been kind of staring me in the face. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to rethink it from the ground up as I turn things back on. I'm like, is this, is this how I want this to be? You know, at first it was just an experiment. Like, hey, I got a free Raspberry Pi. Let's put this thing on it. Oh, look, it does this. It does this. Then it started to inform, um, uh, I started, you know, my, my, one of my coworkers uh, turned me on to the thing like right before Christmas 2020. Um, I mean, so close to Christmas that I think I had to run out and get, well, I, I think I ran out to like December 23rd to get a new SD card because I had filled up my my previous SD card. I went, I made an emergency run to Office Depot, I think on like the 23rd of December, something like that. And uh, so, so I was in this thing where I was like, all right, let's try to get all my weird Chinese cheapo, like all my Sonoff devices and everything up. And at some point, some of them I could get to work and some of them I couldn't. And at some point I realized, why am I working so hard to preserve these cheap IoT devices? Why don't I just only ever purchase IoT things that, that I know go with Home Assistant? So for example, even though they have cheap uh, and it may be even well-rated um, smart bulbs at Walmart, uh, they don't work with Home Assistant or not easily. So I'm not going to buy anything before I buy any IoT device anymore. One of the first things I do is I check and see, does it work with Home Assistant? And if it doesn't, I don't even consider it because there are competing brands. They may not be as cheap, but they do the same thing. And why buy anything that doesn't easily work with Home Assistant when there are options that do work easily with Home Assistant? So that's that's now my first pass filter is okay right, i can i can get rid of 60 percent of these things because uh you know i just don't even want that system in my house and it's actually a nice heuristic because when you have you know 20 options it's nice to be able to say okay well here's 12 and now let's decide on the 12 that are unacceptable let's decide on the eight and it's a, it's a smaller decision and i like that a show that i have been listening to um i heard it actually because uh, I listened to the Home Assistant podcast, and this guy came on, and he's the, the co-host of a podcast called Self-Hosted. And I subscribed to Self-Hosted, and it is, as the name implies, about um, nerds, basically. They're big old nerds taking systems that might be cloud systems and moving them into their own houses. Home Assistant is absolutely a thing like that. But these people also do... You know, ne also network attached storage, like I did. That's the kind of thing. Instead of putting everything in Dropbox, what if you did it in your own storage things in your own house? And there are way more hardcore. Like, I am not hardcore about that. It's a thing I'm trying to do, but it's not my be-all and end-all. To them, it's their be-all and end-all. Like, a cloud service is failure to them, basically. Uh, you know, the when you use the Lady A or the OKG, uh, to them... I'm not even sure if they use them. I think maybe they're so dogmatic that they don't use those. I can't remember if they do or don't use those. But like the fact that that has to go out to the cloud to do a thing to them is a, a little bit of a, a, it's a burr under the saddle. And I like the show and the show tells me technical things that I like, but I do find, and one of the, there's a, one of the hosts more than the other has, has that such uh brittle nerd thing that is off-putting to me. And I've, as long as I have been in the software world, I've run across these people. And the people who are dogmatic about a thing. And this language is garbage. And this language is fantastic. You know, the, I mostly don't have such strong opinions about anything like that. It's like, it works for you, it doesn't work for you. I, I mostly don't care. You know, I talked about how I don't like Python, even though at this point, it might be the most widely used programming language. I think most people use and love Python, and I don't, and that's okay. I love Ruby and Ruby on a Rails, and it has had a moment, and it is absolutely on the downslide in terms of popularity. Even though Rails is still, there are new Rails, there's probably a new Rails update last week. Like <laughs> I was surprised when I did a program, uh, when I did a project with Rails uh, recently, like how much farther it had come since the last time I touched it. I mean, and there's still people chugging on Rails. It's no longer the top uh, programming skill on um, LinkedIn, but it's, it's, it exists. And if it's uh, stable and goes forward, then more power to you. But the, just the dogmatic, this is the way it must be. This is the only way it should be. 
and I will tell you that um, in a similar vein. Uh, so, so anyway, to close the thing on self-hosted, I listen to it. I like it. But boy, that attitude just rubs me the wrong way. And if I ever unsubscribe from the show, it will be because I've had enough of that attitude. One of the things that was a longer term goal of having the uh, network attached storage in my house is um, my Linux laptop has never been backed up. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I, I have most of the crucial, like would ruin my week if I lost it type stuff in Dropbox, but I don't have a comprehensive backup. So I started looking for it. I was like, now I've got terabytes sitting here. Uh, I can mount that thing as a local drive and I can, you know, I've been putting, I've been archiving stuff like, you know, giant piles of old stuff to that. Um, but I don't have a comprehensive like time machine like backup. And that was my goal. It's like, what's the closest I can get on Linux to like a time machine backup. And I looked around and, you know, I, I'm looking at this, whatever the top hit for top six backup Linux backup solutions are. And I tried one of them and it looked actually good other than the fact that it locked up my computer because it was such a resource hog. It like locked up my, it didn't lock up my computer, it locked up my UI. And I, it's like, well, when this thing runs, I mean, this thing is making my computer unusable. So I ended up uninstalling that thing, even though it seemed like it would technically, it was probably even better than what I'm using, but it just, it, it was unacceptable. And then I tried this thing called, so that was back in time and I tried it and I just couldn't, couldn't hang with it because it, you know, because of the performance. And then I tried um, this thing called Restic. And I, I don't know if it's an acronym, re or Restic, R-E-S-T-I-C. And it looked like it was going to be good. Except that once I came to setting it up, this thing is sitting on a NAS in my house, which has no external, it's not accessible externally. And they do not allow you to create a backup without a password. Now, even if I used a stupid password, I did not want a password on my backup. And they don't, they don't even, they don't have any flag. And I, I'm like, is this right? And I Google on it. And what I found was like a GitHub issue with pages and pages of people arguing about this. And someone was saying, why don't you let us have a backup? Well, having a backup without a password is a terrible idea. It's like, so it was that opinionation. That that nerd opinionation that this is the way things must be, and they're so opinionated that they're not allowing their software to make a different decision than that. You could have a flag that says no password, but they will not. They would not put that in the product because they didn't consider that uh, or the project. They wouldn't. Con- they consider that so abhorrent that that would uh, cheapen the whole thing. So they wouldn't do it. It's like, you know what? This may be the absolute best thing for me, but fuck this. <laughs> So what I ended up going with, which was actually still pretty good, is Duplicati. And uh, I will link, have a link to it in the show notes. And so it's a, it actually is, I believe this is multi-platform. I think it works on Linux and Mac and uh, Windows. And it, it, you install the thing. And at least on Linux, there's not a UI per se. It, um, it runs as a background process and I think is a cron job. But it it uh, creates a, the the interface is a web interface, so it opens a port somewhere in the five thousands. And you, if you say open the thing, it actually opens that web page, the web interface to that thing, and it lets you set up um, backups. And what I do is let you do them network or local. And because I have my backup drive mounted locally, I just tell it right to this local drive, which is you know in a, in reality on my NAS, and I have it back up my home directory every night at 1 a.m. And the first um, the first time it ran, it took you know hours, like two hours. And then now it takes about 20 minutes at 1 a.m. every night. And it does this incremental back. It only backs up things that have changed since the last one. And it it seems to do exactly, uh, you know, as they say, it does what it says on the tune. I have yet to, I opened up the backup and I'm able to explore it. I have not done a thing where I tried to restore from the backup. So, I may be hosed on that, but at least I was able to look at files and verify that they were there and actually read the files from the interface. So that's what I'm doing now. I don't know that it's the best option, but it's a good enough option. And I am not a maximizer. I'm a satisficer. So having um, got something that does what I need, uh, I'm stopping looking. Even if there's a better alternative, I don't. You know, there can be a better alternative. I can live with that. I, I've got a thing that does what I need done. 
and the cost of looking for it more um, probably outweighs the any value I would get from you know a thing that's ten percent better. So there you go. That's I don't know that it's a, I'm not even recommending it. I'm just saying it's a thing I'm using duplicati because uh, it seems ridiculous to have free terabytes in the next room over and not be backing up this laptop. And then I also decided to back up the Etsy and the VAR directories like once a week or twice a week, which I think VAR, VAR might have been a mistake. I, need, I think I need to prune it because uh, I think I backed up something like seven gigabytes of <laughs> ephemeral log files and journal files. I don't think I need that. Um, I, may, I, may want to, uh, I may want to exclude some things. But regardless, uh, I got a thing running. And so uh, there's a thing off the list. The setup of the new life uh, continues, unabated, full steam ahead. Next stop, today's a, as I record this, it's a cold, I'm recording this because it's a cold, rainy day. And the next stop is to unpack things uh, as much as I can stand it inside this house for today. <sighs> every fewer, every time a box, every time I take a box cutter to a box and flatten it, an angel gets its wings. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for listening. Show notes will be up at evilgeniuschronicles.org. You can reach out to me at dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org. I appreciate all the feedback. I thank you for listening. Uh, let me know if you get some value from any of these recommendations. Uh, if you're looking for a Linux, if you're a nerd, which if you're listening to this, you're at risk of that. And uh, you're on Linux. If you're listening to this, you're at risk of that. And you need a backup solution. Uh, and this turned out to be valuable for you, let me know, because I love to hear those sorts of things. Thank you. I will catch you again next time, and do not forget, in this cold, rainy world that needs backups, that I love you. Goodbye. When that's over, if we're still alive, I'll clean my own fucking mess up.